just want to start with a thought. And that thought is that if you and I are going to get to the same place at the same time, coming from all the various different backgrounds that we have in this room and in this church and this community, uh, then we need to know where we're going, <laughs> right? We need to know where the end is, what the, the goal is. And because of that, we are going to spend probably the next, I don't know, six or so weeks talking about vision and mission and what we at Calvary call the core commitments. Um, now, don't be afraid that we're just going to be kind of doing a bunch of meeting things. We're going to be preaching out of the word um, through this season. What we want to do today is really speak about our vision here at Calvary. What are we going to be all about? And let me share that. At Calvary, we want to make Jesus non-ignorable in Monta Vista and to the ends of the earth. I'm going to say that again because I would love for everyone who's a part of this church to know that. If somebody says, hey, what is your church about? You can say, hey, we are about making Jesus non-ignorable in Monta Vista and to the ends of the earth. And now you might be sitting there thinking, what does it mean to make someone non-ignorable? I mean, is that even a word? It wasn't a word. It is now. We use it like it's a word. We're going to talk today about non-ignorable. My assumption is, is that we know what it means to be Monta Vista. <laughs> we know what it means to be the ends of the earth. That's everywhere that's not Monta Vista. But what we may not know is what it means to be or to make Jesus non-ignorable. Now, I'm also going to take for granted today that most of us, if not all of us, know who Jesus is. Now, if you don't know who Jesus is, you're going to hopefully discover that today as well. And what you will discover is that there is no way that you and I can make Jesus non-ignorable. He already is. By his nature, by who he is, by what he has done, Jesus himself is non-ignorable. But our job is to make him that, and in other words, establish him as that, that other people would know that. To do that today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now, this is beginning the, the story of the church. What we're picking up right after, as we come into Acts chapter 3, is the, the Pentecost celebration, the day that the Holy Spirit came to the church. Peter preached, thousands came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The church is forming, and this is what we see. We're going to read a few of these sections fully. I'm going to share kind of the summary of a few others because we are looking at almost the entirety of chapter 3 and 4. If I were to just read that for us, we would be here till lunchtime just reading it. But I want to start, and I'm going to start with our, our beginning, and that is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. 
And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as we move on in the passage into verses 11 through 26, what we see is that Peter preaches a sermon in the temple as a result of all these people coming and gathering and asking questions. Now, we're going to look at a few of the details of this sermon in a little bit, but for right now, just know that it is a powerful sermon that ultimately God will use to lead another mass crowd to Jesus. Now, that leads us to chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, which I will read for us. It says, as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now just take note that 5,000 is the men. That doesn't count the wives and the children, the single women, right? Who knows? This might be twelve to 15,000 people are coming to Jesus in this moment. Now, that leads us to the rest of chapter 4, in which we see John and Peter having been arrested. They're dragged into the council's presence. Now, remember, this is the same council that months before had arrested tried and condemned Jesus to death. Same people. They refuse to believe, even though standing right in front of them is a guy that everybody knows has been by the the way, the road, begging for alms for years and years and years lame. He's dancing in the street. And they still don't believe. Peter and John are told by the council to not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. They are commanded to never speak of him publicly again, to which Peter and John answer in verse 19 through 21. They say, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They will not keep their mouths quiet. Finally, as we finish out this section, I want to read the end of this, verses 24 through 31, as John and Peter released, 
go back to the church, to the gathering, and report all of this. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now that's a lot, but that's the whole story. That's the whole picture. Let me ask you, who among us would not want to experience the kind of things that John and Peter and the church experience in this passage. Anybody? I mean, granted, I don't want to get thrown in jail overnight. I don't want to be dragged in front of a kangaroo court, right, and be told not to speak about Jesus. None of that do I want. But to see a man healed right in front of your eyes, to see five, ten thousand Come to Jesus to experience the bold preaching in the streets as crowds gather, yearning for the message. Absolute confidence in the courtroom before the same authorities that had just killed Jesus. And to cap all of that off, who of among us would not, if we were praying for boldness in this room, for the community here in Monta Vista and the San Luis Valley and for Colorado and for the United States and, and for the world to suddenly experience the ground shaking under us, not just because there's an earthquake, but because the spirit is moving in such a way that it is undeniable that God is active. Who among us would not want to be a part of such a thing? Amen? Amen. See, and all of this seems to be fueled by a knowledge that, that the church is surrounded by people who do not know Jesus. Now, most of us in this room have been Christians for a long time. A few of us have been Christians maybe only for a few months or a few years, for half a decade or for a decade. I found as I'm a Christian, the longer I am one, the more I forget what life was like without Christ in my life, right? I mean, for some of us, we came to Christ at like age six, and the worst sin we had ever done is steal a candy bar from a cabinet in our house. And yet we knew the sin in our life. We knew where that would lead and we accepted Christ. But for some of us, we may remember what it is like to walk through this life without Jesus. Without his relationship. 
without his help, without the Holy Spirit who's available to every believer, the power that comes, missing out on the purpose for which we were made and created, not just that we would walk through this life, but for a purpose God made us, walking towards hell without his saving grace. Some of us remember what it was like to miss out on the greatest thing, the greatest part of our lives now, and the greatest thing that has ever existed in the history of this world, Jesus Christ. When we look outside the walls of the church, what we see are people who are ignoring the most amazing thing in all of existence. Now, I've only been here in the valley for a few months, but I can't imagine a day where I'm going to drive from this building or somewhere else and begin heading east and ignore Mount Blanca. I can't imagine a day that I'm going to be driving somewhere else and, and ignore the fact that there is beautiful creation all around us. It was funny. We were driving down from center today from the church up there. And for the first time ever, I looked to the, east, or to the west. And there was a school over there that I had never seen. I have driven down that road 20 times. And I realized I'd never seen this big old huge school over there. We were taking the back way down. Because I'm always looking the other way. Let me tell you, it would take work to miss the mountains in Monta Vista. And let me tell you, the world works at missing Jesus. The world works at missing Jesus. But hear this, they're not the only ones to blame. Because when we talk about Jesus being non-ignorable, we need to talk about you and me. And the question about whether in our lives Jesus is non-ignorable, not only to us, but to the people who would look at us as Christians, as believers. When people look at Calvary Monta Vista, do they see Jesus or something else? When, when your neighbors, your family members look at you, do they see Jesus or do they see somebody else? Church, how we live our lives, how we show Jesus, teach Jesus, share about Jesus matters to the people around us who are doing their hardest to ignore him. And our role as Christians, as a church, is to make sure that nobody can ignore Jesus, but they have to make a choice. They will either follow him or they will not. Now, we're going to get back into our text now. We're going to look at seven characteristics of ministry here that are non-ignorable. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor Matt, when you do a three-point sermon, we're here for an extra like 35 minutes. You're doing seven? I got lunch plans. I got dinner plans today. Don't worry. My aim is to keep each of these seven points shorter than any of my three points, Okay. So, what does it mean to make Jesus non-ignorable? First of all, normal folks on mission. Number one is normal folks on mission. Now, what's a normal folk? Well, I'll just tell you. Look at the person next to you. Look at the person across from you, right? That's a normal folk, most likely. I will also say, look at this guy right here. I like to think I'm pretty normal. 
I mean, I know I'm abnormal and I'm loud, but here's the reality. The church is made up of normal people doing supernatural things. Why? In their power? No, in in Christ. Look at this, uh, chapter four, verse 13. Here's what, what we see. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. I love it. The the Jewish leaders, right? These are the experts, the experienced, the trained, the skilled, the gifted. And they look at these two nobodies and they say, wow, like, what are you guys doing? How can you do what you're doing? They're astonished at what's being accomplished by two people with no training and no education. Now I will tell you, I once was a was a guy with no training and no education. I'm now a guy with some training and some education and some experience. And I know we have varying levels of that in this room. We've got former missionaries and former pastors and and whatnot, but even they, even I, we're all just normal people. There was a day when I started off in the same exact spot you're sitting, sitting in the pew listening to somebody preach. We make Jesus non-ignorable when normal folk like you and I are on mission. Why? Because normal folk can't do it on their own. See, when the people who are super gifted and super trained and super experienced do something cool, everybody says, yeah, wow, that's, that's good. But when Bob the nobody brings his neighbor to Jesus, was it Bob or was it the Holy Spirit? Of course, it's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus working. So the first characteristic of non-ignorable ministry is normal. Normal people like you and I doing the normal thing of walking through life faithfully and sharing the gospel. What is it that sets these normal people apart? Look at me at the end of the verse we read just now. Right? They're astonished and, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, the thing that separates normal people who do nothing for the kingdom from normal people who do tons for the kingdom is time with Jesus. They had spent three years walking with him in his footsteps. The dust that Jesus kicked up landed on them. Even in all their failures and their miseries and their problems, they were just normal guys who had spent time with Jesus. And now, 15 or so, 12,000, who knows, uh, people have come to Christ and there's a guy dancing in the street who just an hour earlier was paralyzed. Normal people. Here's the second characteristic of non-ignorable ministry. It's public. It's Public. Look at chapter 3, verse 7 through 10 with me. It says, He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood, he began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Jumping to verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. 
And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Look at chapter four, verse 21. It says, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Everything about chapter three and chapter four is public. Every bit of it. We live in a culture right now that says, hey, look, you're a Christian. Believe what you want to believe. That's fine. But do it in your home and do it in your sanctuary. Don't do it out there. But non-ignorable ministry does not happen inside the church. It happens out there. It happens on your morning walk. When you love the guy you see every day and get to know him and even offer to pray for him. It happens at the grocery store when you realize the checkout gal is having a hard day and you pause and pray with her. It happens out there in public. It's scary for some of us. We got to work on that. Number three, non-ignorable ministry is transformational. Non-ignorable ministry is transformational. Look at chapter four, verse 14 with me. It says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. The council can't argue with the guy who was paralyzed on the ground and is now dancing in the street. They can't argue it. Friends, let me tell you, it is really difficult for the world, for our culture, for the devil to argue with a transformed life. And your transformed life in Christ is just as powerful as the guy dancing in the street. Ephesians chapter two tells us that we were dead and we're alive again. If you're in Christ and you say you have a boring testimony, you're wrong. Because you were dead and now you're alive. Wow. I mean, what's more powerful? The guy dancing in the street or the 5,000 men whose lives are being changed? And the communities they're going to go back to and change for Jesus. See, transformation is the best apologetic we could ever make to an unbelieving world. Transformation, healed lives, sin behind us, addictions defeated, new passions, new loves in Christ. Man, when your family and your friends see you different today than you were a month ago, and they say, hey, what's the difference? And you say, well, you know, honestly, I got serious about Jesus. I just got serious about Jesus. They're like, well, what are they going to say to that? No, you didn't. Right? No. They're going to say, wow, I might need to know that Jesus. Right? Number four. Number four. Proclamation. When I talk about making Jesus non-ignorable, it has to happen with your words. It has to happen with your words. You say, well, but, but Pastor Matt, I really like loving people with my hands and my feet. Praise the Lord for that. Most of the time, we don't earn the right to speak until we've served with our hands and our feet. Amen? I'm going to say it again. We don't earn the right to speak until we've served with our hands and our feet. Amen. But it has to come back to our words. 
How many times in this passage is Jesus proclaimed? I'll be honest, I have no idea. Because I can't quantify it. Because at every turn, Jesus' name and salvation come back up. Now, what are some of the characteristics about this proclamation? Here's a few things. The first, it is truth-filled. It is truth-filled. Look at verse 14. You want to talk about not pulling punches? Here you go. Peter says to them in his sermon, but you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. He says to them, plain, not English, but plain words, you murdered Jesus. And if we're going to proclaim Jesus, we can't pull the punch on our culture and on sin in the world. And that's hard for some of us. But we can't. We have to be truth-filled. Now, truth-filled is not enough. Look with me at verse 17. I love what he does here. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Right? He punches them in the face, and then he pulls back, and he says, But I know that you didn't really mean it that way. What is he doing? He's extending grace. He's being charitable. He knows, like we should know, that when people sin, they're doing so in ignorance and in darkness. They're lost. They don't get it. They don't know it. And so he's truth-filled, but what is he? He's grace-filled as well. And he extends to them charity and he says, look, you did this but it was in ignorance. And then what does he do? He offers them repentance. Chapter three, verse 19, he says, repent therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He says to them, you murdered Jesus and you may not have fully meant what you did, but guess what? There's a way out. And his name is Jesus. He offers them to, to repent. So often when we talk about Jesus, but we never get to the repentance part. Do you know the, the, the command Jesus gave more than any other command in all of Scripture, in all the Bible, in all the New Testament, in all the Gospels? He says repent. How often do we say those words to people around us, to, to believers who, who have sinned and fallen short but need to be restored? To, to our neighbors who are struggling and trying to figure out if Jesus is real. Proclamation with our words is part of making Jesus not ignorable. Number five, if we're going to make Jesus not ignorable, we need to be bold. Boldness. Now, in case you've missed it in this passage, it is steeped in boldness. <laughs> I mean, from the very beginning, when Peter and John, instead of giving a guy money who needs help on the street, they're like, well, we don't have any money, but we can heal you. By show of hands, how many of you have walked up to a homeless person and said, hey, I don't have any money or gold for you, but I can heal you? This is bold. Now, something awesome happens. They had the confidence in it, in it when it worked, right? <laughs> they're bold in that. But not only that, it's bold for Peter to preach in the streets and in the temple. And it's boldness before the, the council that told him to be quiet. 
And they say, no, we can't do that. In chapter 4, verse 13, we, we can see that even the, the council recognizes the boldness. Here's the words. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, right? They recognize how bold this is. This isn't even just us looking at scriptures, but they saw the boldness themselves. And we see where that boldness comes from. Chapter 4, verse 20. They say what? For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Let me ask you this. If you're a Christian, can you but help speaking of the goodness of God to save you and save others? Man, if we've experienced Jesus and his love and his grace and his power in our lives, how can we but help speak that to a world that is desperate for it, even if they don't want to hear it? The source of their boldness is that they had spent time with Jesus. All right, number six, we're going to make Jesus not ignorable. We need to be Jesus-focused. We need to be Jesus-focused. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Chapter 3, verse 14. He says to the council, but you denied the holy and the righteous one. Or to the, to not the council, but to the, the Jews in general. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. in the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his, this perfect health in the presence of you all. Chapter 4 verse Eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, every opportunity comes back to Jesus. A miracle has just taken place, and they're not talking about the miracle. They're talking about Jesus, how the miracle happened. They bring it back to salvation over and over and over again. We see this pattern in all of Peter's preaching and all of his writing. No matter what problem arises, he brings it back to Jesus. Now you can't help but wonder if that's because when he was having a major sin problem, Jesus came, brought it back to himself. We see this in the proclamation that needs to be Christ-focused. Church, we need to be Jesus-focused. Here's a test you can go. Go to your family, your friends, your loved ones, who may or may not know Jesus, either way is fine, and ask them, what do you think I am the most passionate about? What gets me the most excited? And where do I, am I the most concerned or worried what would they say? Would your neighbor say, you know, man, of all the things you get excited about, Jesus, he's the one. Or would they be like, you know, those Broncos, <laughs> top of your list, right? Rockies, not right now, but <laughs> right? They would say, hey, what am I most concerned about? Say, 
Well, you know, I think you're most concerned that there are people who don't know Jesus. Would they say, Joe Biden? Like, what do you get most excited about? What are you most passionate about? What are you most concerned about? I'm going to give you one guess on me. I'm as loud about Jesus as I am about anything. More so, I hope. But man, there are times when I know there are people who say, Matt, you're not excited about Jesus. You're just excited about being within the shadow of Mount Blanca. They're like, do you really want to go plant a church or do a church in Monta Vista? Or do you just want to go hang out in the mountains? That's a concern that I have to be aware of. Now, I really hope I can love Jesus and be as loud about Jesus as I am right now as I hang out in the mountains. <laughs> right? Man, I had a, I had a, a student. He was a, a high school kid named Nick. Great, solid, young, young Christian man growing in the Lord. It was awesome. Um, I think he is still going to church, still, still in the Lord from what I can tell. Um, but I remember he was 17 and we were sitting down in Chipotle up in the, in the Littleton area. And he said, Matt, how do I talk to my friends about homosexuality and about pro-life and about all these hard issues? I looked at him, I said, Nick, why would you want to talk about those things with your friends? And he said, well, because they're important. I said, yeah, <laughs> they absolutely are important. But let me ask you a question. Do your friends know Jesus? He said, well, no. I mean, it's all these things that they get hung up on. So they can't get to Jesus without figuring these things out. I said, I said Nick, they're never going to come to Jesus through that path. But if they could meet Jesus, they might get to the path of those things. Right? Some of us, we get really excited about Christian things and Christian ideas and the, the politics of those things. The reality is what the world needs is not a discussion about pro-life. Now, I'm going to tell you this really carefully. The world needs Christians who are fighting for pro-life stuff. Unapologetically. Period. But what the world needs first and before that is Jesus so that their hearts and their minds can be changed by the Holy Spirit so that they can think biblically. We need to win people to Jesus with Jesus. I have tried to win people to Jesus with all these other things. They don't work. But Jesus wins people to Jesus. And once Jesus is in their hearts, many things change. Finally, we come to prayer. We want to make Jesus not ignorable. We need to be about prayer. Now, I love the prayer that we read about at the end of chapter four here. You can preach on this all day and all week and all month. It's really amazing. It actually follows uh, theme by theme the, 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 the Lord's Prayer that Jesus says, pray like this. It actually follows that to the T. But what, ha what are they praying for? You look at this and you, and you just see the model of their prayer. And here's a few things. You go to verse 24 and I'm not going to read these. So take notes and go back and read them for yourself. Make sure I'm, I'm correct here. Verse 24, they address God as sovereign which is really important in a season of upheaval, suffering, and persecution. Right? If you and I are going to go through hard times as our faith, you know what's really important? To know that God's in control of everything. And they turn to God and they say, God, we are facing persecution. Two of our leaders just spent the night in jail. And we're told to not speak, but you're in charge. 
We have confidence in that. Verse 25, their prayer is full of scripture, right? They're literally praying scripture back to God. I've heard people say, why would I pray scripture back to God? He wrote it, he gave it to us. He already knows it. Well, because just maybe the words that he gave us are the best words to pray. And so they're praying the very things they read about in the Old Testament that apply to where they're at now. Verse 27, what you get is an honest and plain description of the problem before them. It, it bends no words. It, it doesn't, doesn't add anything. It's just, God, here is our problem. And verse 28 looks to God's plan for that problem. So one thing about prayer is we often go to God and before we actually seek his plan for the problem, we're off doing our own thing. But they're looking for his fix in verse 28. And then in verse 29, the only real ask in this entire prayer, what do they ask for? They don't ask that they would be removed from the persecution. They don't ask that they would be saved from it. They ask that as it comes, they would be what? Bold. They don't say, God, rescue me. Rescue us from this. God, make this pain go away. No, they say, Lord, make us bold in this. Make us faithful in this. And that's their prayer. I love that. Because they know more is coming. And they know their own weakness. Because if you turn to God and ask him for boldness, it's because you know that you might not be. You know that that when your neighbor finally brings up faith or finally brings up that, that, that subject that, that you might just kind of weenie out. And so we pray for boldness. Why? Because we know that we're not always bold. And if we're going to make Jesus not ignorable, we need to be. Especially in the world that we live in today where the world is doing its best to not see Jesus. And we are their best way to see him. These seven characteristics of ministry make Jesus non-ignorable to those around us, to those we love, and even to ourselves. We say for some of us here today, maybe you, today is the first day that you will stop ignoring Jesus. That you will stop ignoring him. Maybe you're seeing Jesus for the first time and go, wow. He's like Mount Blanca. He is unmissable. Or maybe you've been following him for a lot of years and you know that there are things in your life that have caused him to be ignorable to the people around you, to the community, the neighborhood, the coworkers, the family members. And today's the day that you need to come before Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to be non-ignorable in my life so that you can be non-ignorable in everybody else's lives.